Well, hello and welcome to Are We There Yet? Market Scale's online video podcast series that explores the most exciting companies, projects, and technologies in transportation and mobility today. My name is Grant Harrell and really fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with some of the most innovative companies, technologies, projects, and innovators and really excited, speaking of today, to speak with Electric Goddess and to speak with us about the exciting company and projects that they're involved in. Really fortunate today to have Erica and Luke uh, to speak with us. So Erica, Luke, uh, hello, and welcome to Are We There Yet? Thank you. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Hi. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, really appreciate you taking the time to speak today and, and have been really excited to learn more about your company and projects and just so impressed with everything that you've accomplished in a relatively short period of time. So really appreciate you taking some time to talk today. And I think that battery technologies, battery cell technologies, EV, transportation, mobility, uh, such an exciting uh, topic uh, in the world today. And I have a lot of events and conferences, things like the Battery Show and EV Tech Expo that I know that uh, we'll all be at here soon, uh, coming up just right around the corner. So really just, I, I think, an exciting topic to be speaking about today. And so speaking of all of that, would love to maybe just jump into the are we there yet question and uh, would love to get some of your insights, Luke, uh, regarding transportation, mobility, battery technologies that, that really are commercially viable and scalable to truly replace traditional technologies. Are we there yet? All right. Um, for, for a battery technology, you know, what we use today is pretty highly scalable, right? Um, with caveats being in, in NCM cells and NCA cathode cells, you know, you run up on nickel as a uh, limiting reactant in your supply chain. And uh, in an iron phosphate cell, you know, essentially it's uh, lithium becomes a, a price factor, you know, and, and it becomes a, a dominant material cost in the, in the cell and supply chain limit from scaling. And uh, that, Fortunately, that's not because there's a shortage of lithium, though. There's a shortage of lithium production. And so, uh, you know, that, that challenge with lithium can be solved. But if you don't want to solve that challenge, um, the sodium ion is in, uh, you know, incredible abundance. And uh, it works as a sodium iron phosphate battery, I, ironically, uh, using a graphite coating over a copper anode for your... Uh, current collector, you know, and uh, an aluminum coated in sodium iron phosphate and uh, traditional carbonate ester based electrolytes and uh, sodium hexafluorophosphate is your ion. It, it functions almost identically to a lithium iron phosphate battery just with a sodium iron phosphate. So because there's no phosphate limitation, no iron limitation and no sodium limitation, you know, uh, that topology could scale to replace, you know, not only all the grids of the world, all the all the power grids to be stabilized of the world, but also uh, you know all forms of transportation. One of the caveats being, uh, you know, lithium has a lower galvanic potential than I mean, sorry, sodium has a lower galvanic potential than lithium, and so there's an associated uh, lower voltage per cell while you're in uh, the same range of capacity. So you have a you know energy density hit of around uh, say 30, 40 percent, maybe more. Um, maybe maybe as much as sixty percent. It's it's actually complicated on uh, a number of factors. But what what phase you're converting the graphite into, and how heavy you're uh, normally you'd call it lithiating, but this would be sodiating, I suppose. Um, so as far as transport, we're mm -hmm. 
driving EVs now, right? Luke yeah. and I have electric motorcycles, electric bicycles, electric yeah. vehicles, and that's awesome. But mm. I think what Luke is talking about is when it comes to mass producing the cells and the energy mm -hmm. storage that we need, yeah. there's really that journey that we're all on when discovering the material science and mm. the technology that goes into providing the electric vehicles to the masses. It's also worth noting uh, a sodium iron phosphate cell wouldn't have to be worse than today's lithium ion batteries for the reason that today's lithium ion batteries, um, most of all of the, uh, you know, you have, you have a cell, let's say the cell weighs 68 grams, you know, and um, of that cell mass, only a couple grams are actually active lithium that you're changing oxidation states on to provide useful energy, you know, from the cell and all the rest of that cell 68 grams, you know, say, say the other 65 of the 68 grams is uh, not related to uh, the actual action of that stores energy. It's related to the infrastructure to enable you to uh, change oxidation states of that lithium ion and then unchange it. You know, it's, it's essentially like you are burning a metal, you know, you could see magnesium burn, right? It's almost like you're burning a metal, except you're able to unburn it because you didn't burn it in a way where it bonded. It was interstitially uh, intercalated between oxygen valences. And so it was uh, similar to burning, but uh, you changed oxidation states just the same. And so the, if you were to be able to use, say, even five grams of that cell's mass to be uh, useful, ions undergoing reduction, you know, not if you were lithium, you'd be double the energy density, right? But if you were sodium ion, you'd be as good as today or better. And for that reason is, is the reason I mentioned, it doesn't have to be a penalty. It just is today if you use sodium ion with drop in existing cell technology, but that's only because this is a relatively uh, infantile uh, stage of development in storing electrical energy, you know? Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I appreciate that. You're, you're certainly educating me a, a lot too on that process, but, but I think ultimately it makes sense. And do you, do you feel that the, like the sodium ion technology and, and, and process that you described is, is, is it necessary? Do you feel like maybe that's the key no. to really getting to commercial it's, scalable it's or only, not necessarily? It's only necessary if you don't want to scale lithium production. Uh-huh. Okay. Say that you view uh, the salt pressed films in, in, you know, Bolivia and Chile and Australia and whatever as something not to scale up production for whatever reason of, um, even though if you're trading the atmosphere for it, it seems like a foolish trade to me. But um, let's say you don't want to scale production, then that's when something like uh, sodium ion would be useful, you know, because otherwise lithium iron phosphate, uh, just with today's existing technology and manufacturing capabilities, makes amazing EVs, you know, with long, useful, durable cycle lives. And it's only limiting uh, supply chain factor, you know, is uh, obviously you need high purity electrolytes, you know, as, as part of this material, but those are not uh, material choked from scaling. They're only whether or not the factory wants to build an extra line or, or build mm -hmm. an extra reactor, you know, build an extra. Yeah an extra supply chain, yeah. but the input feedstocks are not restricted. So you could yeah. scale it to replace all the energy storage for the whole world quite easily that way. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. Very good. And if you don't mind too, and that kind of probably bring a lot of this full circle, but do you do you feel like we're moving towards um, towards scaling production that that would be necessary? You know, with with the lithium technologies, or kind of yet yet to be determined. As you shared, that's really the kind of limiting factor now. Do you feel like we're moving? You know, to to maybe start opening up on the production side of things more. To to be honest, I'm I'm not a lithium supply chain expert to comment, but we do have a battery recycling company. And we extract lithium, you know, as one of the many materials we harvest from batteries. And so uh, the reason I bring it up is because it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, continuous burden of lithium. You know, that that's actually one of the easiest loops to close on the recycling, uh, you know, materials process recovery. So um, you would you would essentially need to mine enough lithium once so that you had batteries for the people in the world to do the things they wanted to do with batteries. And from that point forward, as they reached end of life, you know, which something really amazing is uh, a lot of credit to Jeff Don's amazing researchers and himself, but um, there's been proven many combinations to make electrochemical cells, including lithium ion batteries now that have a uh, expected calendar life in the say hundred year plus range and have expected cycle lives. You know, there's a, an example of uh, a, a titanate iron phosphate, a lithium titanate iron phosphate. The, the research on the cells that they made, they stopped cycling it for time constraints at something like 5.5 million cycles. And that was, you know, it, it still had nominal capacity. Um, but, the, you know, the, the penalty of those cells is uh, the energy density is only something like, say, 30% of today's NCM cells you might find in a, in a Tesla Model S, for example, you know. And so even though the cell would, you know, allow you to recharge your car uh, millions of times over a hundred years of use with before you need to replace your pack, you know, you would, you would have a third of the range. And so uh, today's market isn't asking for a car with a third of the range in a hundred year lifespan. But, but what it shows is that the technology doesn't have to wear out. You know, if you have pistons going up and down in cylinder bores with, you know, um, you, you've got your compression rings and everything, they need ring drag to, to function, to compress, right? You know, and, and uh, to seal well. Your valves have to crash down on their seat and interface hard to seal well. And all of these mechanics means there's wear involved. You know, every time your camshaft hits whatever lifter element it's engaging, you know, uh, there's wear here too, right? So these things are finite. Whereas a battery and an electric vehicle doesn't necessarily have to be finite in its uh, use case. You know, it, it, if you're willing to make the design cost and uh, capacity compromises, you can do it today, as Jeff John's team has demonstrated with a number of cells. But um, the beauty is that since we're only using such a small percent of the size and weight of each cell for active lithium storage today, we will find out how to do it with, say, three times as much, four times as much, five times as much, and make it last a century and make it last mega cycles. And, uh, you know, at that point, battery replacement will be something, you know, yeah. it'll be life of vehicle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. I, I really appreciate that. Those, it, those insights. Yeah. What's awesome is it's not a physics problem or a chemistry problem. It's a material science problem. It's an electrostatic and, and nucleation problem, electrostatic field stress and, and nucleation decay of electrolyte splitting molecules, you know, it's the side reactions. Essentially, what I'm getting at is uh, the chemistry that you would write down in an equation for how a battery works when you're changing oxidation states of, of lithium ion between graphite and, and a 
metal oxide complex, you know, and uh, in in this function, there's no side reactions, and it doesn't ever have to wear out, and and nothing has to go wrong. It's all of the the, the effects due to impurities, due to surface irregularities, due to electrode irregularities, due to crystal irregularities. You know, all of these things are what cause the decay mechanics to happen. It's it's not like it, it intrinsically has to wear out. You know, a, a lead acid battery in your car has to wear out because the acids reacting with the lead from the moment it's added, you know, it's, it's, it's flipped its hourglass over, but um, lithium ion batteries don't have to work this way. You know, they, they don't run in a, an aggressive uh, sulfuric acid electrolyte, right? We use carbonate esters. Yeah. Any, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I think that's very optimistic, um, you know, positive outlook on it, you know, in terms of it really reaching the battery technologies, battery cell technologies, you know, uh, you know, being set up, the science is there, you know, in terms of, you know, replacing traditional fuels. Uh, we need to do, you know, some some improvements uh, in terms of the, the life as you shared and kind of hit that balance between, you know, the range that's necessary, you know, with the lifetime of the technologies. And we'll figure out that more, you know, as we go, it sounds like. But I think that's a really, really positive, you know, outlook and, and insight to have on it. And, and, and I think really shows that, you know, on the science materials uh, side of things, production side of things, that it certainly is, is set up for success in replacing those traditional technologies. So um, I really, really appreciate that. So, um, Thank you. yeah, yeah. From a, from a manufacturing technologies perspective, it's kind of like, uh, you know, um, the days when we started to put, say, vacuum tubes together to form crude logic networks to make a computer, you know, and and once someone had built, you know, one that used like, say, a thousand separate vacuum switches or whatever, you know, they thought like, wow, this has got to be the end of the road for this technology, you know, like this fills a whole huge room and consumes so much power, you know, to do this computation. Yes. But now, you know, our, our smartwatch has like, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of transistors, you know, in this, in this network. And in the battery perspective right now, we, uh, you know, we make the best particles we can, the best uniformities and purities, then you, you blend them with the right binders, you know, you mix the slurry, you coat it and you roll it. But the thing is, is, uh, this is kind of like the stage of, uh, vacuum tubes hand wired together in the room still. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. when we begin to leverage, you know, I, like I mentioned in, in that cell, it's, you know, 68 gram cell and it's 65 grams of material to help you change three grams of it to usefully do energy storage change, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that that's what I... That's your margin. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's your margin to grow, right? Yes. You're, you're, using, you're using this much. So, so it's basically like uh, we've only begun to... Uh, investigate meaningful storage of electrical energy you know let's not forget if you have uh, atomically precise manufacturing all you need to do is make layers of uh, graphene and barium titanate in in perfect atom precise layers in a sandwich to form a, a plate capacitor and you beat the energy density of gasoline by something like 8x and on top of that it's not even a battery it's a capacitor and so this is this is what you know. So it doesn't even need electrochemical reduction, right, to work. It stores an electrochemical charge of the dielectric capacitance of the barium titanate. But you know, um, the reason I bring it up is because that's a manufacturing problem. That's not a physics problem. Right. You know, right? You could have a shoebox in your car that holds more energy than a full tank of gasoline for you, and you could recharge that shoebox. It's a capacitor. You could recharge it in one minute. You know, and uh, that would kind of obsolete batteries. But today. We only build atomically precise structures painfully slowly 
a, a few layers at a time, you know, and so to make meaningful energy storage devices that are, you know, of that precision today, it's, it's the same challenge of if someone said, well, here's your vacuum tubes, I need you to wire me up a hundred million of them, please. And also put it in a practical location. You right. Know? You'd say, well, there's no possible way, yes. right? but that's the lack of creativity of, of realizing the process that light ahead, you know, in deep ultraviolet photolithography, you know, to, to etch and, uh, you know, selective doping and now 3D doping and selective 3D etching, you know. So once these processes uh, were created, now it's a trivial thing. And, uh, you know, even even a dollar store gift card that opens to sing you a song has, you know, half a million transistors in it, right? And it's, you know, it's not a not a big feat today. And, and I don't think energy storage, electrical energy storage, to hold all the capacity you would ever want for your application uh, will be a big deal either as that... Uh, materials tech and manufacturing tech, you know, it's, 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 again, you're not pushing against a physics problem. You're pushing against what can you make for a reasonable cost that's safe enough for consumers to use and uh, lasts an acceptable lifetime problem. Right. And so, you know, if, if someone's coming at you saying, uh, I'm looking for, you know, beating gasoline by some large margin to one, then, you know, that's another discussion. You have to start at an atomically precise structure to get there but it's still not a physics problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good, very good. I love that. No, you look through that lens too. And I think, uh, you know, think of the example as you mentioned, and we've, we've done it before. Why can't we do it again? The physics is there. So, uh, you know, just need to, to continue kind of that innovation on the autonomously precise manufacturing, you know, side of things, research side of things to make it happen. And I know that's that's very much uh, what you do, what Erica does and, and what the company does. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about the company and some of the projects, but, you know, I would love, I think might be a good kind of, you know, segue uh, speaking with you and, and with your incredible insights, you know, in terms of kind of moving towards commercial viability. I'd, I'd love to, you know, learn from you, Luke, how, how, how you got into space. How did you get into, you know, working with Erica and the team there and uh, into the, you know, battery cell technology things? Would love to learn a little bit more about your journey to where you are today, if you don't mind sharing. I, I'll try to make it brief. Um, I did uh, data center megawatt scale UPS cooling and, and power work for Microsoft, and uh, it was you know it introduced me to uh, megawatt power transfer, which you know was was new to me at that time. And uh, after after Microsoft, I left to go to Zero Motorcycles, and uh, this was a radically different environment. You know, a data center is vibration free; it's temperature and humidity controlled. So basically, anything you work, anything that you build has no corrosion issues, no vibration issues, you know, no resonance issues. issues. So, you know, it was very, it was like doing batteries on easy street. And uh, now, you know, it, at zero motorcycles at that point in my life, um, I, I learned a lot of, uh, you know, basically the R&D curve was so difficult. And I think what helped the most was uh, being foolish enough not to give up and, uh, you know, I, there was a period of time for a couple of years where I would work every day from the moment I woke up until exhaustion late at night and you know, closed, closed zero down, set the alarm. Like there was actually a problem one time when I didn't close the alarm because people didn't know how to set the alarm. <laughs> yeah, just knew you were going to do it. Yeah, they're like, why did he leave before? Right. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, uh, I, I worked like that because um, we had to get to production with a safe product and um, you know, in validation testing, you would find 
concerns, you know, they, they call it engineering discovery, right? And so on. It was a long chain of repeatedly test as, as fast as you can try a new design to test. And uh, what, what got through it was not uh, a stroke of brilliance or anything. It was um, not losing the drive to, to stay creative and to continue to try testing, you know, and uh, eventually things worked, you know, we were able to enter production and uh, it was, you know, a huge weight off my shoulders and, and the rest of the team shoulders. And uh, after that, you know, the, the process to do it was difficult from a manufacturability perspective. You know, it, it worked like they lived in the wild and they were safe, but they were difficult to manufacture. And so I spent uh, another four years or so there working on manufacturability to make them simple and uh, you know, pokey-okey and, uh, you know, essentially unable to be manufactured wrong is, is the goal, knock on wood. But um, af after that, I left because I realized the rest of the industry was just now starting to learn these challenges that Zero had had a head, year, head start on, having been an EV company that founded in like 2007. And so, um, you know, it gave me uh, this drive to help uh, share the things that I'd learned to protect EVs, to survive in the wild, to save waste, and to, to save EVs getting a bad reputation too when there's uh, events, you know, it hurts the whole industry. And I, I had, uh, you know, moderate success just as a single freelance scientist with a backpack of tools. And uh, I was blessed enough to meet Erica while working at Romeo Power. And uh, she was a program manager there. And at, at some point we realized uh, we were far more powerful to combine forces than the, the sum of our components. And I'm so grateful. And it's a good time for her to introduce herself too. Yeah, well, thank you. What, what incredible story and journey and, and inspiring. And gosh, you're, you're doing a lot of good along the way uh, as well, just, just helping the companies and sharing some of those insights that you had. And uh, what, what a powerful partnership, you know, as you shared with, with you and Erica. And I think you demonstrate that every day through the, the great work that you're doing. So would, would love, um, Erica, to, to learn a little bit more, you know, about you and, and, and the company. As I shared, I've just been so impressed as I've gotten to know you and Luke and learn more about the organization and all the, the really cool projects that you're involved in. Do you mind, you know, sharing uh, with, with me and audience members a little bit more about uh, Electric Goddess? Of course, Luke is being so humble. I always enjoy that about him with how much he's helped the world. I was, <laughs> I was blessed to start my career as an intern working on the Dragon capsule at SpaceX. And I got to meet a bunch of incredible people and learn that work drive uh, that really Luke learned it in a different way. And I learned it with having a golden star or North star mission and working towards that and having that clear. And then I joined Romeo power when they were just a factory that was empty and I ran new product introduction. So that's all the way from R and D into customer deliveries. So I helped with choosing the equipment, setting it up, uh, building, uh, products, testing, everything. And got an education that I feel so blessed to have because I know it's very in demand. And I kept getting promoted and then was running a joint venture with Borg Warner, helping run it. And that's where Luke and I really got to see that global perspective on how much batteries are needed from a large corporation perspective. 
And we knew that there are startups out there and even large OEMs that really need the guidance and the knowledge that we have. And so Electric Goddess was formed and it's a really fun business name. We have kind of polarizing uh, views on it. Some people are like, this is really shocking. And other people are like, I love it. And uh, it has been so fun to do all the way things from communication satellites, electric aircrafts, electric VTOLs, uh, all the way to like jet skis and power sports and electric trains. And if you has a battery in it, we're very interested in helping you on your specific application because there's not b batteries that are one size fit all. And that's what kind of drives Electric Goddess to be a battery consultant, but then also have an analytical test lab because we want there's technology is changing so fast and we need to be able to stay on the tip of the spear and test the new products that are coming out and be able to give the advice to our clients and do the tests for our clients that help them uh, stay ahead of the curve as well. Definitely. If I can uh, comment on the test that we do too. Yeah, of course. Um, we kind of focus on the niche of the tests that other labs turn down. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, having, you know, uh, 12 years in industry, working with batteries and and being on the side of calling other analytical test labs, you know, and saying, hey, I need this. Um, we we learned which ones you just, you know, you can call them all. It, you can have a blank check, you know, ready. And, uh, you know, you, you can't get a test ran. And so uh, it, of particular tests, you know, there's, there's some tests that are either very technically difficult because the odds of, uh, you know, the signal to noise ratio you're looking for is very small, let's say, or or say it's a thermal impedance measurement that's very difficult, or it's uh, too dangerous, or a uh, work health safety you know hazard sort of concern. You know, say that uh, even with exotic PPE, you can't protect from the hazard. You know, and so uh, we actually built some very specialty equipment flavored specifically around hitting all these niche tests that the other labs turned down, including. Uh, to our knowledge, the world's largest thermal runaway calorimeter for batteries, our calorimeter, it's a inch and a half thick, 316 steel, stainless steel. And uh, it's it's a something like 3,500 pounds. We actually, we actually used a old, I don't know if Luke will like me to say this, <laughs> oil rig uh, equipment wow. uh, to use it for testing mm -hmm. batteries. It's which we found to be like really cool in the life cycle. Uh, the, the stainless body of the calorimeter we test batteries in yeah. is a uh, high pressure oil pipeline refinery strainer basket holder. Wow. That <laughs> happened to be 316 and the right dimensions and size. And uh, yeah. then we welded and modified onto it to uh, and, and added the heat exchanger stack. Of course, it's just the lower pressure vessel. Yeah. Electric Goddess comes from humble beginnings, right? So Luke talked about a backpack, and when I met him, he just owned a motorcycle and that backpack. And we started in an extra bedroom of an apartment, uh -huh. and uh, we had people coming in and be like, why do you have so many power supplies in your extra bedroom of your luxury apartment? <laughs> and then <laughs> from there, we hired our first employee, and he was the one who kind of helped us encourage uh, to get a yeah. space, right? Because that was... Before 
before we hired an employee, we had to do many jobs to get income first when it was just sure. Erica and I. Yes. But uh, yeah. once once we had, had success, you know, we were growing with no marketing either, just by word of mouth wow. referral. So uh, yeah. as as grassroots as it gets. I quit my job, corporate job on a Friday, and on Saturday we got a call saying, hey, can you come to New York? And we're like, I guess this is the universe taking care of us. Wow, no kidding. No kidding. Meant to be, yeah. I would say. Gosh, gosh, how cool. That's incredible. Well, that's 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 so inspiring. What a what a just a really cool grassroots, just kind of get it done, starting from starting from scratch, really, uh, in into what you've become today. I think that's just even more inspiring. And how ironic that you're using some equipment, you know, from traditional oil for the latest, coolest stuff in EV and, and electric and battery technologies. I think that's a lot of fun too. So even better, yeah. Our our um, one of our R and D labs is right next to a giant oil refinery. Oh, perfect. And um, yeah. I think it will be our battery recycling facility uh -huh. because uh, many of the vessels there are useful for digestion tanks, electrolyte distillation tanks, you know, fractional distillation to uh, separate things. So anyways, there's there's a lot of equipment there that when we don't need them to be processing gasoline anymore, you know? Yes, yes. Perfect. Battery recycling facility. You, you strategic location. You're you're already thinking five yeah. ten years out on the location. So I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. Just got to cross the street and we're there. Yeah, you you are. You're a very long term thinker. I like it. Oh, that's cool. Wow. <laughs> well, okay. So so fun question. Um, uh, I'd I'd love to maybe get some of your perspective, Luke. So um, you're you're involved in in so many different mobility transportation methods and everything from scooters and paddle boards and EVs and everything else. But maybe talking EV automobiles for a second. If if you're on a on a drag strip, which which do you prefer to be in? Do you do you prefer to be in a in an EV or a traditional vehicle? Okay, it's funny you ask that because uh, you know my my grandpa was a drag racer and one of the first people to put Detroit diesel. 871 series blowers on gasoline engines and uh, okay my my dad was a drag racer and a hot rodder and and i was also a drag racer and still a hot rodder wow and um Gee. i gotta say i can't tolerate interruptions in my torque delivery anymore okay so um you know the 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 loss of time and shocking the tires too you know if you're gonna have a car that shifts uh, each time you shift, you shock the tires again, you know, so you had to be at under max traction threshold of, you know, max under max slip rate before you shift. Yeah. And then after the shift, you know, you, you shock the tires again. So you got to, uh, you know, rec anyways, you have to, you have to like make these soft places in your boost curves, you know, yeah. and, uh, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. There should be no soft places <laughs> in my acceleration. That's why yeah. pure EV for me. Also, okay. I hate breaking transmissions, axles, clutches, mm -hmm. and uh, I have shredded so many sets of uh drivetrain components you know I, I used to go to the track with two spare axles and sometimes i'd still get pulled home on a toe strap one for each side but you'd break your spare and um you know this is because you're shocking the drivetrain you took the the internal combustion engine intrinsically makes zero torque at zero rpms so to get your launch to work you know you store kinetic energy in your crankshaft you know i would i would launch on a two-step limiter at ten thousand five hundred rpms and uh, on the clutch drop with this twin disc clutch, you know, it, it grabs it and it shocks this kinetic energy. And it's kind of up to uh, the luck of the draw and how your ankle, you know, engaged that shock to control the magnitude of the time constant between the uh, crankshaft locking up one to one through this through the slip of the disc. You know, and so because of this shock, you know, um, it's it's not good for your launch and it's not good for your drivetrain components. You know, it's 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 basically a I DNF'd 
half of the drag events I entered with my gas race cars. And part of that is from running too much nitrous or too much boost because you get excited at an event, you know, yeah. but um, yeah. In, in an EV, yes, I've blown EVs up too. You know, you can blow your EV motors up, you can blow the controllers up, yeah. but um, you don't have to, you know, I've never had to replace a transmission or, or powertrain parts or axles, you know, and like, yes, wow, that's, yeah. <laughs> never want to replace another transmission. Like, yeah. Luke has the fastest electric bicycle in the world. You can look up Death Bike on YouTube yeah. and you'll see him racing Tesla. Yes. Okay. And that's Luke. Yeah, in the full quarter mile, wow. too. It, it actually is faster than a Ferrari Enzo in the full quarter mile. And that's my electric bicycle. Wow. So you can see why I would be disappointed in gas car performance, you know, if yeah. like my pedal bike, you know, is slower than an Enzo, or is faster than an Enzo, you know, then it's like, why do I want all the noise and jerking interruptions and mechanical failure modes that frequently occur, as I know, having a history of drag racing. And it's like, you can just drop all of that and just be fast with all the torque the tire can hold at optimal slip ratio all the way down the quarter mile. That's how I want my runs to be now. For sure, for sure. Gosh, well, that's incredible. God, I, I'm so glad I asked that question. I think you might be the most qualified individual in the world to have answered that question uh, officially for us today here on the podcast. So, gosh, thank you so much. I had no idea the background and from generations of drag racing. When I was in school, I wanted to be a Formula One engine designer. And I would say the mentor I, I guess I did learn the most from in life is uh, Larry Widmer of Indyne Motorsports, you know, which does uh, energy dynamics. It's an it's a race engine tuning um, business, you know, and I, I learned my thermo and fluids from race engine tuners, and now I apply them to electric vehicles and, uh, you know, feels like shooting fish in a bucket from, a, you know, the, the difficulty perspective difference. EVs make torque and horsepower so much easily, you know, like uh, hot rodding has never been better than electric vehicles. You know, if you, if you like ridiculous overpowered hot rods with insane acceleration, like you should be an EV fanatic. You, you will just be disappointed in that pursuit with gas engines. For sure, for sure, wow. And, and I love that you, you learned it from your experience too. You didn't just jump into the, the newest, fastest EV and you know, yeah, it's fast. You know, you've been there, done that with, it sounds like, you know, all sorts of different types of vehicles and traditional technologies and maxed them out, uh, you know, with with uh, all of the work that you did. So uh, you really have an appreciation, it sounds like, for EV. And of course, to be uh, very involved in that space right now, that's that's really cool. So, wow. Well, you've, you've officially answered it here on the podcast related to that, and and, and I'm sold. So um, I, I think I'm going to need to go EV, uh, you know, on the racing side of things now, it sounds like as well. Um, would would love you know I, like I said y'all are involved in, in in a lot of other methods of mobility and and transportation uh, as well and I know that um, you know you're 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 doing a lot of really cool work e bike space um, you know as you've shared electric paddle boards EVs um, VTOL aircraft. And so would, would love to maybe just get, you know, kind of an overall perspective in terms of, and I think you've kind of answered this already with some of your successes, but, you know, I was curious, you know, within talking about some of those other methods of transportation, um, are, are battery packs, battery cell technology, is it, is it working? Is it safe, you know, in some of these other methods of transportation? So we'd love to, you know, get any insights that y'all might have on, on that as well. If, if it's a pack that we designed and validated for our clients, then yeah, I can say on a, you know, it's safe, you know, it's, it's so safe. Um, you know, we shoot say five, three inch nails into them while they're preheated to max temperature at hundred percent state of charge 
you know, we initiate overcharge runaways, you know, we initiate uh, ev every type of propagation, even laser induced propagation and some other creative methods um, to, to start thermal runaway and validate that it doesn't spread cell to cell in a chain reaction that just, you know, that consumes the whole pack or the whole vehicle, right? So we, we do tests where you, you know, pass something PPR, passive propagation resistance, meaning with no outside interference to help fire it, you know, fire extinguishing, you know, no, no active methodology, right? Just initiating runaway uh -huh. with no helping the battery and it self extinguishes and does not propagate. Wow. And so, yeah, even in those situations where in the, in the extremely uncommon, you know, cell defects today are almost non-existent you know, in, in lines that are set up right and like some, you know, somebody didn't put the die in backwards or like, you know, some, some grievous error in the line, right? But um, cell defects that cause fires are extremely uncommon. What's common today is packs that don't adequately protect from corrosion, vibration, chafing, resonance, and material compatibility, dielectric decay. Um, there's some teething pains in industry right now. And uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, I think there's, there's going to be folks that still continue to learn lessons over the next few years, particularly the highest voltage systems. You know, we do uh, dielectric decay tests on different dielectric materials where you impose static electrostatic DC fields across these materials and, and monitor how they uh, perform mechanically and electrically over time. You know, and it turns out um, many of them don't like DC, you know. The, the reason why so many dielectrics work great with AC is because it has an equal and opposite electrostatic migration field because it's, you know, it's AC wave is positive, you know, 60, every, every 60 times a second, it switches from positive to negative. And so there's a net zero field, but in DC high voltage situations, you know, there's a net positive gradient. And so, uh, you know, even when you have mega ohms of isolation, there's still even with one volt across your dielectric with mega ohms of isolation, there's still millions of electrons per second flowing. And these are the electron cascades that move ionic migration through, which scissors bonds in polymers and dielectric insulator materials, causing them to degrade, you know, and uh, change electrical properties and mechanical properties. So I think, uh, yes, there'll be some, some tough lessons in industry, but uh, fortunately, at least it can be done so safe. Just like I mentioned, a battery can last a century too you know, or, or longer even, that, that's just what they're extrapolating. But, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's one of those things that like, you know, how safe is cooking in your kitchen, right? Like you could, cooking in your kitchen could mean like you just open, uh, you know, some pre-made meal, pull the plastic film off the top of something, right? Mm -hmm. And like you're done. Or it could mean you're mm -hmm. using a bunch of knives and mixers and flame in a pan, you know, mm -hmm. and, and whatever else you're doing. Right? So, yes. You know, batteries as a thing is, you know, you can definitely make hazardous batteries. And unfortunately, there's a lot of folks in industry still learning these lessons. But um, at the same time, it's good for our business, I guess. Yeah. Because uh, we get called to solve these problems. Um, yeah. Not so good for the world, though. Right. 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 Because it's good for our recycling company, though. You know, it's funny. Yeah. What, start a recycling company? Maybe because we know how the industry decides their paths. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, it, it's good to know you're 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 protecting the world. I think in the work that you do, and 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 you're making these technologies, you know, for clients that you work with, um, safer. And so I, I think that that does really just point to the the great work that you're doing, and um, you know, the world very much is is benefiting from that. Um, so that's that's great to hear. Um, you know, as as you as you shared, you work in a lot of these different areas. I know that EV, of course, is is a focus of yours 
and would love to maybe too, you know, get a little perspective from you, Erica, in terms of, you know, EV companies, you know, really avoiding recalls. Do you mind maybe commenting on that a little bit about how, you know, these EV companies out there, you know, uh, can can work to, to avoid future recalls on, on technologies? That's a really good and big question, Grant. I would. I, I want to start with saying that Luke and I, being with Electric Goddess for three and a half years now, we're a relatively young company. You, we are establishing our, I guess, credibility to the larger world, right? People who know us and we've worked with them, like they know who we are. They know the work we do. I get that. But when you are, let, let's say when we first started, we went to the battery show and you're talking to large OEMs and you're talking to engineers and they're telling you about their pack and you're saying, well, these are the things I would test and these are the things that I would look into because I think that you're going to have a problem in a few years from now. They may not believe you, right? Because you're like, who are you? You're coming out of nowhere and you're telling me I'm going to have a problem in a few years. And the crazy thing is, is that those same people, I wonder if they think about us ever when, you know, we're reading those news articles of things coming out and we're like, this could have been avoided. And so that's why we're talking to you now. That's why we do our podcast. That's why we're getting more information out there is because we just need more people out there in the world starting to understand these concepts that batteries are, like I said earlier, just not one size fit all. So you need to understand your application and you need to not only just go off the test standards that you need to do to check a box for your insurance or for shipping it, but you really need to think critically about testing to failure and understanding your margins on our, when does it fail and how does it fail. And I think that that'll help the industry a lot instead of kind of just ignoring the blind spots, but maybe they just don't see it. Creating validation testing suited towards the application too, you know, because uh, like Erica mentioned, a lot of folks do the test to check a box for a shipping standard or whatever, but that has nothing to do with whether your product lasts in the field or not. You know, that's a that's a shipping standard, right? And so, um, it's when you create a validation process where you, you know, I love to instrument real vehicles in the field, whatever they've got if they've already got a product, you know. You instrument it that way. You have real G data, real shock data, you know, and and use it, you know, use it as hard as the hardest customer you could imagine using it and log all of those operating conditions, you know, and um, then you can build a validation program that's not blind and not somebody in, you know, some academic writing r random values in the dark to make a standard, you know, which is unfortunately how a lot of standards get built. And it may have no relevance on whether the product lasts well in your application but if it doesn't last well then you have a recall like you mentioned and so if you don't do validation testing you get recalls and if you do do validation testing you still have to do you have to be creative enough to think of the real test environments and situations the product will be imposed on and find ways to test them and confirm that you have safe behavior you know it's okay if a product stops working it's not okay if a product takes homes down right and so uh, this is why safety testing, you know, for, for a lot of products, if it's like, you know, a, a piece of consumer electronics that if it gets left in the rain, it doesn't work. And that's the end of it. You know, too bad. So sad. Right. Nobody cares. But um, if it gets left in the rain and then it gets parked in a garage and it burns the home down, 
now it's not, you know, it's a different level of recall. You actually have to get them back. It's not a matter of we'll mail you another one, you know, or whatever, if your ears broke. But um, in this situation, it's it's critical. And so uh, to ship without adequate validation is how to get recalls. And even in that validation, it's not going to be by some letter of some standards. The standards, sadly, are kind of a... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say they're useless because they're a benchmark of something, right? There, there's someone's line in the sand they drew. Unfortunately, I, I haven't found situations where it correlates with the wild, uh, you know, meaningfully. And and you can obviously pass the standards, check every box passing the standards and ship a product that is recalled quickly. You know, like an, an example of the GM Bolt Pack, right? You know, it went through... You know, I, I don't know the exact number of millions of dollars in the testing program, but I think it was over a hundred million dollars in testing, right? And then you ship it and it dies in a couple of years and that's, you know, um, complicated effects. Batteries are complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it is very much so. And, and as you said, the stakes are much higher, you know, than they are in consumer electronics and some of the other areas. So a little more of that validation is needed. I think standards, just as you shared, you know, that are, are thinking maybe a little bit more long term and aren't just someone's line in the sand, as you as you mentioned. And sometimes right. maybe the, you know, the industry and professionals such as yourself, you know, can maybe agree upon in terms of what's really important to focus on. So I hope that, uh, you know, especially some of these big companies out there are listening more to you now. And I hope that the ones that uh, you uh, you spoke with a few years ago now are thinking of you and, and hopefully using that, you know, in development of their future strategy and maybe taking all of this uh, a little bit more serious. But uh, nonetheless, you know, I think the industry and all of us are, are very much benefiting, you know, from from the work that you're doing. Um, talking a little bit about the work that you're doing, and I think that you you already, each of you have commented a little bit on this, and I, I love this idea that you kind of pick up where other testing companies, you know, kind of fall short or testing that they're unwilling or unable to do, un and a lot of times- Unwilling. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the opportunity, you know, really, I think, to to work with you. And and, and again, I and I just want to share too, I think, what, what a, uh, a valuable proposition you know, it is for companies to work with you and to benefit from that experience, because I think just in the, you know, the 30 minutes or so that we've talked here, you know, today, it's it's very uh, apparent um, that, that, that you each bring some incredible real world experience, especially going back to really the early days of the industry. And so for a lot of these companies, rather than starting from scratch or even starting from, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, you know, just just so much value, I think, in, in working with, with each of you to bring some of those insights into the company and even just to complement, you know, what they're doing already, you know, through a relationship with you really seems to make a lot of sense and, and, and help them, you know, to develop more long term solutions and safer solutions. So I, I really see the value in that. But again, you, you've commented on this a little bit, but, you know, I would love um, if you don't mind maybe sharing a little bit more of insight into, you know, maybe just a general description of, of, of the type of companies that you typically work with, that you like to work with, you know, that maybe benefit from from working with you most. Do you mind, you know, sharing a little bit more about, about who these companies typically are? I'll, I'll let Erica answer it after I after I give a, a kind of funny part. Yeah. For, for me, you know, um, we we only accept jobs for our whole company. We only accept jobs for devices that we would want to use and be used on us. And so, um, you know, we don't we don't accept devices that are uh, destructive or, uh, you know, things we wouldn't want to use against us or on us. And so, um, you know, that's that's our first cut on what companies we work with. But from there, um, I love to work with the ones that have some challenge that's never been solved before. 
or they're up against something that's so insurmountable, their in-house engineering team has already spent six months to a year spinning their wheels on it and millions of dollars. And um, those are my favorite ones to get. But uh, I'll let Erica give you a, from the non-scientist perspective, which companies are good to get. It's so interesting to have a staff that needs problems so difficult. They're always on the curt, like the cusp of like a mental breakdown, yeah. but euphoria, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. They just, they, he just wants the challenge. Just give me the most yeah. difficult that they've already invested millions of dollars and years of work on and yeah. I want those projects. That's incredible. Yeah. And challenging. I would say at the same time, sure. Yeah. yeah. I I always found when I worked not at this company, you know, now we just do really hard R&D, which I love it. But when I when I didn't work here, I was like crave the days at, at my jobs where I was doing really hard problem solving, you know, and like the days where you had a known outcome of success as, as achievable, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, like just much less inspired. I would I would way rather have someone saying this is undoable and unsolvable as a. Uh, as a problem. In fact, many of the jobs we've taken, when the job was initially presented, my knee-jerk reaction, you know, thinking thinking about the physics of the situation was that it probably isn't possible. And then um, after, you know, after 15 to 20 minutes or so, you see a glimmer where maybe on paper it is possible, uh-huh. you know, and then uh, once you've got a glimmer, you got to chase that glimmer, you know, yeah. make a telescope and zoom in on that glimmer and yeah. Yeah. You know, find a path to it. I love it. I love it's it. A, so an ideal project yeah. is one for you that, that seems impossible at first, but after a little bit of analysis, there's a glimmer of hope. And that's when you say yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely a Luke answer. Yeah. And yeah. we like that. Yeah. Uh, Electricatus fits as a nice addition to existing R&D teams, existing engineering teams, as just an outside perspective that, that can help the team give perspective on what we've seen in the industry because we've worked on so many different things, right? So it can apply to equipment makers. It can apply to, uh, apply to polymer makers, like not even just batteries, there's all the different material science problems around what goes into a battery and how you test batteries. And I just really enjoy working with optimistic people that have that same kind of North Star as us that see that our role here is to do the best we can to help the world transition and change paradigms from this kind of dirty energy paradigm that somehow took over the past hundred years and transitioning to the next one where we have a glimmer of hope uh, that we can have drinkable water and clean air to breathe. Yep. And we got to stop treating the air like a unlimited dumpster, because if we do that, we will, you know, that, that has a conclusion, right? Like you can fast forward time and see what that leads to. And it's, it's breathing dumpster air, right? And everybody's dead. So we can we can skip that. We're smarter than that. Absolutely. You already know that outcome, right? We we all do. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. So we we've got right. to make a move in the other direction. And 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 I really think this whole conversation for me has been so positive and 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 optimistic and and insightful that that this this other direction is is the way to go. We can do it. You know, on the battery cell technology side of things, the technology is there. The physics is there. Um, you know, it's really getting more into the production. 
kind of optimization side of things. So that's that's the electricity is yeah. there too. Yeah. Because we're not limited on the amount of solar panels we can make. You know, it only takes something like uh, don't don't quote my numbers here, but I think it's something like a ten mile by ten mile square dedicated to solar to power all of North America. And the, the crazy thing is you might think, oh, well, that the budget to make, you know, because a 10 mile by 10 mile square is 100 square miles. So you have solar panel, you know, it's a lot of panels. You know, I think, well, you know, we could never do the budget, budget to make 100 solar panels. But I, I heard someone say that it could be done for one year of the U.S. military budget cost. Mm-hmm. And so that would mean you had all the power yes. for all of North America. Yeah. In it, it's not even taking up a large amount of your country. You're like, there's probably people's ranches in Texas that yeah. can hold a 10 mile by 10 mile square and they yeah. wouldn't even care. You know? For sure. But uh, for sure. anyways, if, if you had that big of a solar farm, then you wouldn't want something like I mentioned, the sodium iron phosphates. You know, if, if you scaled lithium production, you could just use lithium. Lithium's a fantastic ion. You know, small atomic radius and uh, intercalates well, high galvanic potential. You know, uh, basically lithium is like definitely better than sodium in every way, other than that we have unlimited sodium without any supply constraints today. Whereas we do have a ton of lithium, we just have supply constraints. So I guess the question of like, are we there yet is a lot of people are struggling on which direction are we going? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. If if half the people are clinging to one method and, yeah. and half are uh, you know resilient to change and half are like pushing change or whatever, then you kind of have like, a net zero difference if, if you know half of them are running. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. But but the cool thing is that every year, you know, you see the percentage of our grid that increases that solar and now it's becoming solar and battery stabilized. You know, the whole uh, Tesla Powerwall being commanded as a group thing that they're doing now, you know, it's something like, uh, I don't want to get the numbers wrong. It, I, I don't remember how many megawatts it is now, but but basically this is just home solar can replace peaker plants you know, in, in this aspect, or or even if it was in, uh, you know, evening without sun, sun coming in, right, and, and there's the right home battery storage, you know, then you can just use the same transmission lines that they deliver power to your house with, you deliver power to the power company back through them, you know, when the power company needs it, and now the, you know, the natural gas speakers are obsoleted. The, the power companies that we talked to when we did some grid stabilization work, they don't even like having peakers and they don't like having to fire them either. That's why they put in such high price bids to run the peaks. It's because the thermal stress of starting the engines, you know, those those big turbines will last forever running at a steady output because they, they slowly ramp up their thermal shock and thermal expansion gradients, you know, puts very low stress through their, their gas exchange, you know, heat exchanger assemblies and everything. But um, when they go to peak, they, you know, they start from, uh, just pre-warmed to making power in like six or seven minutes or whatever their their peak delivery time is and as a course of this they put big you know expansion uh stresses you know from from not asymmetrical temperature and all their you know exhaust stages of their turbines and things and so this causes uh you know they don't they don't want to do it they don't want to peak they'd way rather have something that peaked for them so they don't have constant maintenance and high cost you know to deliver those peaks and so for batteries you know yep. Batteries are like Mr. Peaker, right? Like they, they're all about power. You know? Yes. Um, they they want to give power in a millisecond. You know, they don't have a seven minute wait. They're like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how about a microsecond? You want full power, right? right. That's, that's how it works. And it doesn't degrade from that either. You know, like the turbine plant, when it fluctuates power, yeah. you, can, you can slam power into and out of the battery, you know, as, as hard as you want, as fast as you want. Yeah. And that's not a, uh, 
you know, a mechanism that causes uh, artificial wear, unlike other things we use to stabilize the grid that yeah. involve burning natural gas or or other things for peaking. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I love that. Yeah, and and I think what a great way to kind of bring bring all of this. I think kind of for full circle. So you know, certainly everything I think that we've talked about today, it's it's not even just limited as as huge of an area as, as transportation and mobility and everything that we've talked about there. But you know, it really gets into um, you know the ability to to get more into some of these renewable energy sources, as you mentioned, and, you know, set the grid up, you know, for success with some of these technologies and methods that are just, you know, in and of themselves, you know, better, you know, for those types of things and peak demand and, and everything. So um, I think that's, those are some great insights, you know, to bring all this together, I think, in terms of kind of going in that right direction that, that we all want to be, be headed on right now. So I appreciate the insight on there as well. And, um, you know, as, as we've all talked about today, I, I again, just am, am so impressed with what you're doing. Love that you're making the world a safer place. Love that you're sharing some of these insights, you know, with your clients um, to help them, you know, to, to really make their technologies better. And so I know that already so much demand in terms of companies uh, that are working with you. But if you don't mind doing so, um, I know that as a result of the interview today, and, and we feature this at marketscale.com, um, the top business to business media platform today and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and, and all the major platforms. So I know as a result of this incredible conversation, there's going to be a lot of individuals and a lot of companies out there that are going to want to learn more about the company and, and working with each of you. So if you don't mind, do you mind sharing website and, and, and maybe how best people can reach out and explore working with, with each of you in the company? Only if they're stuck on something really technically. That's difficult. a caveat, right? No, I'm just, I'm just it's got to seem we, impossible, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's got to seem almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. No. Actually, it's really good for the earth if we get involved early because we can help you with material selection that that won't be a uh, hazard in a few years, you know, and uh, that that can be extremely valuable, even yeah. even though my preference is really difficult science. Yes. We know, have engineers and scientists on staff, though, and we're more than happy to help. And Luke is right. Starting earlier saves the business more money and helps the planet in the long run. Our website is electricgoddess.co, and you can reach out to us and schedule a free introductory call for 30 minutes where we can talk about your project and see where we can go from there. That sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. Well, very good. Well, you heard it. Please do check out uh, the website. And and again, uh, Luke and, and Erica, just really appreciate each of your time today. All of these incredible insights. This has truly been one of my favorite conversations on the podcast series. And I've learned so much, as, as I know many audience members have as, as well today as a result of the conversation. So thank you each you know, so much for your time and, and wish you nothing but the, the best of the luck in the future. And look forward to continuing our conversations and working together. But thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedules to speak with me today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This Our was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course, you're welcome.